I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, two excellent guests. First up, Taylor Rooks. She is a host and reporter for Bleacher Report and Turner Sports. You've probably seen Taylor's work when it comes to interviewing. She's interviewed some of the biggest names, certainly, in the NBA, um, some of the entertainment space as well. Her, um, her Probably her biggest current project is Taylor Rooks and the vodka, Vodcast. But um, if you were going to look at it, sort of how it's spelled, Taylor Rooks X. So, you know, think about it like Taylor Rooks X and whoever her guest is. Uh, this season's included DeMar DeRozan, DK Metcalf, and Micah Parsons. And uh, we had a great conversation. It's always great to catch up with Taylor just to sort of talk about how one approaches interviewing, um, how she's uh, sort of approached her career. She's still under 30 um, and has had just a tremendous amount of uh of success and um you know sort of what makes a um a good interview we got into her experiences um in the bubble which uh she wrote a great piece for gq on that and just sort of how that changed her and 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 her sort of thoughts and reflections on that um talked a little bit about pam oliver too who uh, both of us have uh, immense respect for and uh and just her impact on the business. So great conversation with Taylor Rooks. She is followed by Alex Sherman, who covers technology, media, and telecommunications for CNBC. And we discussed his piece on um, Bob Chapek and Bob Iger, the rift between the two Disney chiefs. And great reporting by Alex. And then just sort of some ESPN-specific content, what Alex thinks the near-term future of ESPN is, possibility of spinning off ESPN from Disney, future of ESPN and and sports betting, how Bob Chapek's leadership has impacted ESPN. And then finally, um, ESPN and its relationship with larger Disney in terms of that Florida house bill and uh, Bob Chapek having, uh, I think, significant issues right now with his employees, including his employees um, who support LGBTQ. And so um, really interesting stuff from from Alex and, and sort of what the future of Disney is going to be under Chapek and obviously what the future of ESPN is with all this stuff uh, going on. So Taylor Rooks to start and Alex Sherman to finish coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Taylor Rooks, who's been on this podcast before, is a host and reporter for Bleacher Report and Turner Sports. She is the host of... Taylor, the Taylor Rooks and vodcast. But if you um, if you're like reading it, it would look like Taylor Rooks X. <clears throat> that is in its second season, and her recent interviews include Demar Derozan, DK Metcalf, and Micah Parsons. That's a good uh, uh, second season guest list there. She also hosts the Just Playing with Taylor Rooks, where athletes play a few rounds of the pop culture guessing game. Heads up. I think people who listen to this podcast know who Taylor is. You can obviously check out her work uh, through Bleacher Report. She's on Instagram, 
Twitter. And so there are many ways you can get her content. And pleased to be joined again by Taylor Rooks. Taylor, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Hello. As always, thanks so much for having me. It's it's always a pleasure. So I'm looking forward to it. All right, Taylor. Yeah, I mean, you're since we last talked, which may have been like 2019 or so, at least on this podcast or 2020. You know, your career continues to um, your career continues to grow. And so here's where I want to uh, to start. Um, one of the things I admire about how you've approached your professional career is that I think you in sort of instinctively know you have to get your name out because it's a competitive field. And so you do a lot of interviews like this. Um, you make yourself accessible. You're obviously on social media platforms. At the same time, it doesn't feel like you're overexposed. So that's, this is a compliment to me. And I'm wondering if, um, if there, I don't know if strategy is the right word, cause I don't want to make it look like nefarious, but I, I wonder just how you have approached sort of the external pushing of your content, which is really important, but yet at the same time, it's not like, you know, it's not like you're going viral for the wrong reasons. You're not saying some hot take where like, you know, it just seems like you're saying it or someone's saying it to get a, a get attention. I, I'm being honest. Like, I, I really admire how you've sort of navigated, which is many times a very tricky navigation. And so how do you think you've done that? Or at least how have you approached that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a that's a really good question. I don't know if I have if I have thought about, you know, the exact reasons as to why, but something that has been really important to me and. I think also at the heart of all the things that I do is I don't think that people necessarily care about, and then let me get this whole thought out because I think it's going to initially sound like, what are you talking about? But I don't think it's that people care about me per se. I think that they care about the access that I can give them and the questions that I'm asking other people. So while I think, you know, the, uh, the opinions that I have on things are important and people want to hear that, I think my real bread and butter is that I sit down with others and I get them to talk. I don't think that I'm getting, you know, I'm not in news cycles because I, tweeted my thought on something. I'm in news cycles because I got somebody else to talk about something. So I don't think I am like a, a polarizing um, sports media figure. I don't think I'm a sports media figure that is like too in your face. I just think I'm somebody that like gives you access to the people that you want to talk to. And I think maybe that's why it doesn't feel like I'm oversaturated because I'm really just putting everybody else's thoughts out there. If that makes sense. It does. That's a great take. Um, and I think you actually have uh, have nailed it. Does that mean, based on what you just said, and I think that's a really good explanation of it, do you feel the pressure, and maybe pressure is, again, the wrong word, world, word here, but because people are going to ultimately find your work based on what your guests have to say, do you feel pressure to get some kind of news whenever you interview one of the well-known people that you interview? Oh, absolutely. I say this all the time. I think if, if there is not like a revelation made or I, I don't learn something that I didn't know or like the viewer doesn't learn something they didn't know, I think that that interview is like a failure. Um, and I think that about, you know, a lot of the I think that uh, I think about this a lot as I prep for interviews, because, you know, when I'm prepping, I will watch, you know, so many interviews that that athlete has done. Um, I will read so many articles that they have been a part of. And a lot of the times 
they are talking about the same things and they're being asked the exact same things. And for interviews, sometimes it's so simple as just asking them the question that nobody wants to ask or has asked. And there's always one of those that exists. There's always like something someone has said that you could have died. You could dive like a little deeper in. Like, for example, when I, for, when I just interviewed Damar in this season, I saw in an article, he talked about, you know, his dad being sick while he played last season or the season before, but there was nothing about like how he dealt with that. So I wanted him to expand on, you know, his dad and their relationship and how he dealt with his sickness and flying to a game the same day. And that was something I didn't know. And all I had to do was just ask him to expand upon that. So I always feel, feel like there's another level that people can get to. And there's some question about a big topic that hasn't been asked. So I'm always going to ask that because I want to have that moment. I don't think there's a point of doing an interview just to do an interview, right? Like I won't do an interview if someone says there's something that they're not going to talk about. Cause I just, I don't see what either of us would get out of that interaction. You, um, you work for well-known places, obviously, and Bleach Report and Turner Sports. That said, just working for a well-known place doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get any guests that you want. Um, I mentioned the guests who have been on for 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 uh, your second season, DeMar DeRozan, M- Micah Parsons, DK Metcalf. First season had people, including John Morant, Allen Iverson, Michael B. Jordan, Jake Paul, Candace Parker, Dwight Howard. You know, significant names, obviously. Do you book your own guests? Do you have a booker? Or is it a combination of both you booking and, and, a, and a person in the position of booker booking? Yeah, I mean, I... Between the two seasons, let's say I booked what ninety percent of them, but I do have a booker who who is fantastic, and she will handle all of you know the logistics. You know when I will pass off either that that athlete or their manager or whoever. Um, but I enjoy being an active part of the booking. I think that people are going to be more inclined to say yes to the the quote unquote talent, you know? So I don't mind saying, Hey, I would love for you to come on the show. Are you down or talking to that person's manager and saying, I've been interested in having so-and-so on. Can we figure it out? I just care about the show being good. So I feel no way about having to do extra work in terms of, of booking somebody. I think that's one of the reasons that we've been able to have the level of guests that we've had from when I had Take It There on Bleach Report to now. Like we've had a really, really good roster of people doing the show. Um, and a lot of that is just on, you know, relationships I've built, knowing people, having somebody come on the show and they enjoyed their experience on the show. So I say, Hey, will you ask your teammate if they'll do the show? You know, so it's it's a definitely a collection of, of different things for sure. It's interesting you say that. I'll ask you because on this podcast, obviously, we we many times get in the process and sort of go inside. And so the the process of booking people for a podcast is interesting to me. For this particular podcast, your public relations person at Bleacher Report, uh, Tiger Danger, who. Um, Shout out to Tiger. She's yeah, very, very respected <laughs> in her field and uh, spells her name T-Y-G-E-R. So that's like, incredibly <laughs> memorable just as a human being. So she reached out to me and pitched you, which I thought was uh, obviously a good idea. But the previous time I um, had you on Taylor, I know I, I have your email, so I directly reached out um, to you. I, I have found like, and I mentioned as you have, and we're dealing obviously with, with different guests. I generally deal with sports media guests. You're dealing with athletes. Um, so it's a different world, but 
if you can get to the person directly to make the pitch, nine out of 10 times, they will usually do the interview. When you have to go through handlers, uh, a lot of times is when it gets hard because sometimes you never even know if the person you're trying to book ultimately even gets the request. So in your position, how have you found that? And if as you go for the higher level, like I don't know if you happen to know, let's say like Jake Paul personally, but to, to book a Jake Paul, do you go through his management or do you try to get some kind of access directly to him and then make the pitch to him? Yeah. So it's interesting as I, as I'm thinking about the, the people that have been in the season. So Jake Paul and Alan Iverson, those happened because so like Alan Iverson was doing some media for Viola with Al Harrington. So Bleacher was able to book that because they were doing that media. Jake Paul had done stuff with the Bleacher. So they had that contact. He loves doing interviews. So that's how they were able to book that one. Yeah. But all the other people, I would like, okay, for example, um, like Dwight, Dwight, Dwight Howard's interesting because I, 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 that was a good yeah. interview. Like, I don't, I can't think of, and maybe I missed it, but Dwight Howard is not a guy I feel like I've seen a ton of sit down interviews lately, like long form. Yeah. And so that's, that's a good example of somebody. So I interviewed Danny Green on the second season of Take It There. And I knew that Danny and Dwight uh, were good friends. So I called Danny and I was like, hey, would you be down to ask Dwight if he would do the show? Like an hour later, I had a text from Dwight. Like, I would love to do your show. Like, I'll give you the number. My manager will set it up. So, so much of it really is just making that connection with somebody else. And I say this all the time. I've also booked so many people just off DMing them. I will send them a clip of an interview I just did and say, Hey, this is my show. You know, it's on Bleacher and Turner. I would love to have you as a guest. Like, is that possible? Could we set something up? We'll come to you. And people just say, yeah. And then we, we figure it out and make it work. But I say all that to say, it's so, so important that the guests that you have, have a very positive experience on your show and they feel like they were heard in the right way. It's super important to me too. Internally, I tell everybody, whatever clip that we put out, context has to be added to that clip. We can't just put out a quote card. We can put out a quote card, but the swipe has to be fully what they said. The caption has to describe exactly what they said because a lot of guys don't want to do interviews with media when they feel like just headlines are being drawn out of them and it's not, you know, the full context of what they said. And so I've been very careful to make sure that when they come on the show, they feel heard but then the clip that's put out is an accurate portrayal of the things that they said too. Yeah. That's, that's well done by you. Um, all right. That's interesting. I want to, um, I want to reflect back on your piece on the NBA bubble, uh, that you did for GQ, which was a great piece. It gave, um, sort of really an in-depth inside look at just what was a pretty um, remarkable now, if you think about it, kind of sports experiment. And I think life-changing for many, obviously uh, memorable. You know, you've had a little bit of time now, I think, uh, from the NBA bubble to today. And when you look back on that, um, what do you make of that experience? And, you know, Taylor, in many ways it feels – even though it was within the last two years, in many ways, it almost feels like 10, 15 years ago. It feels like a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. No, it does. But I say this all the time, still to this day and probably forever, I'll be like, that was 
like the best moment of my career, I think. Um, you know, obviously not discounting the fact that it happened because we were in a global pandemic and it was a bad time for so many people. It was also during, you know, this social justice movement within the league, like all of that stuff. Um, but I think because of that, there was just so many really meaningful and important stories to tell in the bubble. And there was just, it just felt like the epicenter of everything that was happening in sports. So people were so fixated on what was happening, you know, in this place that I was able to have access to. Um, I just think I really enjoyed my time there. And I think it was actually a, like a turning point for my career too. You know, I think sometimes when you have followed someone and you're like, oh, okay, they do interviews, they talk about sports, whatever. There's a difference with being like entrenched in a place and actually making people feel like they were in that bubble with you. And that was what was really important to me. I wanted my questions to be important. I wanted people to feel like they could talk and be open. I wanted to talk about the pandemic. I wanted to talk about the mental issues in the bubble. I wanted to talk about social justice, but then I also wanted to talk about basketball. And it was like this balance that, that I had to juggle with in the bubble. And I just think I left the bubble a better, like a better journalist. And I had a better understanding of, of how to tell a good story for sure. You know, I have great admiration for the NBA players who spoke their truths, and WNBA players in particular as well, who've really always been at the head of the curve when it comes to social justice. Um, but I wonder if you agree, Taylor, in many ways, um, as uh, as forceful and proactive as the NBA players were, um, we've almost since seen a, a backlash once again of people who um, don't want athletes to um, involve themselves in social justice issues, don't want athletes to involve themselves in anything uh, people would term, uh, political. So, I mean, in many ways, like the bubble was very, very important because of what it shined a light on, but I almost feel that, uh, you know, a year and a half, uh, later, in some ways we didn't take a step forward after. Yeah. I mean, I can see that perspective. Absolutely. Um, there's always people that feel like, okay, they don't want you know, these thoughts mixed in with their precious sport or whatever the case may be. Um, I obviously thoroughly disagree with that mindset. I think it, it's really important to care about what these men and women are going through as humans. And that is really what I try to focus that on if I'm having conversations about social justice. You know, the person I always think about is Fred Van Bleet when we're in the bubble and he's having to talk to the media about you know, Jacob Blake and everybody cared deeply about Fred in that moment because they wanted to know, hey, are the Raptors going to sit out? How is this affecting how you play? What is the team saying? But nobody was just like, how are you doing? Even though he visibly was like about to cry, he was obviously super emotional. And I think that all of these social justice conversations that we have should really begin and end with who these men and women are just as black people. And you don't really have to talk about sports to talk about that. Like if you don't want to mix the social issues with sports, okay, I say forget the sports part then. Let's just talk about the social issues aspect of it. And that's something that I think I have found a lot of, um, I don't want to say comfort, but for lack of better word, comfort, because 
so many times they say the exact same things that I think or that my friends think or that my family thinks about what it means to just be a black person in America. Like not everything has to be what it's like to be a black athlete in America. I think the much more compelling and real and raw stuff when it comes to that has absolutely nothing to do with what they're doing on the field or on the court. Yeah, that's well said. And I mean, you're honestly just intentionally being ignorant if you don't think that sports and politics or sports and social justice have not intersected for um, more than a century now. I mean, you just you really yeah. just honestly just don't know your own history of your own country. But there are people who willfully don't want to sort of acknowledge that. I mean, these are larger topics. You know, I did. I, I do want to. I had this sort of as a question for you, and um, and I wrestle with it as well. And you know, as I get older. Um, and as my career continues in, in sports media, I, I start to like sort of many times sort of think how absurd it is that we analyze and criticize athletes 24-7. And that there is – and I'm – by the way, I, I work for a, a place, The Athletic, which obviously has criticism of athletes, and I worked at Sports Illustrated before that. So I don't take my – you know, I've made money off this in many ways, the, the industry that exists. But I do – I think about it a lot, and like there's no other – there, there are almost no other jobs. I shouldn't say no other, but there are almost no other jobs, Taylor, where people are evaluated on what they do on a 24-7 basis. They're asked yeah. about it on a 24-7 basis. And so here's where I want to connect the dots with what you just said. You you start to think – I think what it does is it makes many of the people who play professional sports, um, people just think about them as something that's almost uh, – abstract and not human do you know what i mean you're like you're you're, oh, you're, totally. you're criticizing like a like a thing and not a person yet you and again i'm not saying i'm not guilty of this but you actually literally forget like there's a person that you're criticizing you're not just criticizing this like video game figure who happens to be on a basketball court or a football field oh totally i mean it's like a, it's a complete dehumanization and i i mean there's probably tons of layers to it right but just when you really only see somebody on a screen for a certain amount of time, you do begin to think that that is all that they do and all that they are. Something that comes to my mind is just like growing up, I thought that my teacher only existed in the school. Like she taught me and then like she went home like in a box and then she came the next day and taught. Like, I remember the first time I saw my teacher at the grocery store, my mind was blown. Like, I could not believe that, like, she was at this grocery store because I'm seeing it as this is like my teacher who I love so much and teaches me these things at school, you know? And I think it's kind of that same thing for people that watch athletes, except they don't even get to the point of, I'm seeing this person at the grocery store. It's just like, I only see you making the shot or missing the shot or in the press conference. So I have no idea your full scope of a person. And I'm not excusing anybody that dehumanizes athletes, but I think that it's easy to forget that they are these other things when you literally do not see them be anything else. So that's why things like social media is important. It's also why I think interviews are important. Like, I was talking to Rudy Gobert about this. People do not like Rudy Gobert. Like they just simply do not like him. I was telling him in the interview when I like would tweet search his name, the amount of tweets that were just like hating on Rudy Gobert were insane. Like more than I have seen 
of any person that that I interviewed, except for maybe Jake Paul. And what I was what he said was like, it's because there is like a perception of me and there's the reality of me. If all you're seeing of me is clips, right? Like you're seeing clips of me touching the mics when I later found out I had COVID. You're seeing people talking about how I'm the reason that basketball shut down. You're seeing people say, I don't deserve to be defensive player of the year because I don't guard the perimeter. People are running this same clip over and over of me getting crossed up, right? That becomes like the perception of me. And these are all just clips that are online. It's nothing rooted in any type of reality, but they feel like it's enough of the picture painted to feel like you know that full picture. And so his value as a human is now tied to his value as a basketball player. And that is something that is super, super difficult. And I cannot imagine what that would be like. You know, I think that there are, you know, maybe some sports media people that they get that to to some extent, but at least with sports media, you are still being judged off what your opinion is on something. You know, you're not being judged off what that performance is. But athletes is just a very specific, like it's like your animals in a zoo, and it's just like the man in the arena, and all we care about in this moment is what you can do for me my team and it's just hard for people to see past anything else yeah it's, it's all well said and again i think some of it uh, not some of it a lot of it too is just your own pov and um and sort of how you see sports a lot of it is just sort of you know who you are in society how you were raised you know me growing up as a uh white male in new york i'm gonna have a much different pov than a person of color who was raised in iowa or indiana um, but I do think about that a lot and I think you hit it. Uh, I think you used the right word and the sort of the humanization of, of many athletes. Cause you really, you're only seeing them on this screen or on a video screen. And, and it, I don't know, it, it unfortunately I think has reduced the humanity, uh, in many at a time where humanity has really been reduced. We're, we're, we're in a, we're not in the best moment, uh, in our, in our time as a, as a species, but that, that would be a larger podcast, yeah. Taylor. So you don't need to deal. Tiger, Tiger so. danger is not going to be happy if you go to that place. So, so no, um, but you, you did say something that I think is, is important. Um, I don't even really have like a full thought with this. I just want to expand on it. Cause I read something, um, that, that reminded me of something you just said, how you're like, you know, I grew up, you know, as a white man in New York. So my experience is different. I read this book recently called Invisible Women. And one thing that it talks about is how through time, obviously white and male have been the default of all things. So people believe that if you, like if you have a thought and it isn't aligned with whatever like this white male thought is, it's like very niche or very specific or very, are very different. So when people talk about things like identity politics, you know, if I'm talking to a white man about identity politics and he's like, well, yeah, like you're voting this because, you know, you're black or because you're a woman and it resonates with you in that way. What they also fail to forget is that being a white male is also an identity. So you might also be voting for something because you are white or because you are a man, but because you have gone through your entire life, you know, being told that that is actually like the standard and the default you think that like white male isn't an identity. Do you, you get what I'm saying? So it's I like, do. yeah, I, I think there's probably, I mean, the reality is um, as, as a white man who has grown up in a, 
although I'm in Canada now, it's yeah, you know, but 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 well, just for the purposes of growing up in the United States, I 100% agree with you. There is a default that that is almost the default identity, and then everything is sort of placed like in many ways up against that yeah. identity. And so the conversation itself exists. Well, why is that the identity? Like, why is that the default identity? And if someone sort of sees things in a different direction, that should not be other or different. But that would, I think, get to the power structures that exist in the United States. And I think, once again, you're just, um, you're not being honest with yourself if you, I mean, just look at the Senate hearings of the Supreme Court right now. Yeah. It's pretty obvious what the power structures are in, in, um, in the United States. I will read that book. I have not read that book, but... Um, uh, but I will, but I will, but I will check that out. Oh no, it, um, it's great. It's called Invisible Women. The author's name is escaping me. I wish it was not because it's a, it's a really good book. She just dropped so many random like facts. Like I didn't know ovaries were called female testicles until the 17th century. Like that is an exact example of like everything was just branching off of whatever a man is, right? Like everything just came from whatever the man was, I was going to switch it for you, but it was still the standard of it all was, was man, you know, and the example she uses is that somebody said to her, well, you only think that because you're a woman. She's like, well, you only think that because you're a man, you know, it's, it, it is that same way for every single person. So I would, I would encourage everyone to read. It. Yeah. Let, here you go. Invisible women data bias in a world designed by yes. men. Caroline Criado Perez yes. is the author and uh, um, won a lot of awards um, within the sort of the business space um, the year it came out, which is, uh, which is 2019. So I, I'll check that out. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, tale. Actually, it's not the, it has nothing to do with this subject, but uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison may be my favorite book of all time. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So, uh, I, and again, it, 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 the subject matter will not be, <laughs> but, but it just had me thinking just, uh, I can see it on my shelf actually, as I, as I look at you here. All right. So one of the things you, again, like a, there's no great segue to go off this teller, but I will try my best. <laughs> one of the, um, one of the, th you know, you work for Bleacher, which I consider, uh, you know, a digital, a, a, a digital company, a di sort of a digital sports company. They were at the forefront at the beginning of that. Um, you know, if Amazon and Apple are sort of the new age digital sports companies, like, you know, Bleacher obviously was like an OG on this. You also work at Turner, which I consider sort of a traditional sports legacy company. Did, uh, and you've obviously done great there and I'm sure you're happy at these places. Did, has, did did working for an ESPN or a Fox Sports or a CBS Sports or an NBC Sports, the real kind of more legacy linear television type companies, did that ever appeal to you uh, when you were um, in college and, and sort of thinking about what you might do? Or did you always have an idea that, you know, you wanted to work with whatever the next iteration was at, like post ESPN kind of thing? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, growing up, I think every person, you know, who is, you know, maybe maybe my age and older um, thought, oh, okay, well, yeah, you, you work at ESPN. If you want to do sports, like you work at ESPN, you go to ESPN and you made it, right? Like you felt like that was the thing. So absolutely growing up, I'd, I'd watch SportsCenter and say, that is what you do if you like sports and you want to talk about it. Um, but obviously through time, what media is has evolved, what media can be has evolved, what people like to consume and how they like to consume it um, has evolved. And I say this all the time, if 
if your work is good enough and your work is relevant enough, it doesn't matter where it began, it will be on TV. You know, these interviews, they res they they originate on the internet. But when the interview is good, it's also the news that's on every channel talking about sports news. So so much of that is about just believing in the content that you are putting out and what type of talent you feel like you are and all the work that you're doing, it will be everywhere, you know? And I think in a lot of ways, the internet has more benefits um, than television does. I don't know if my career would have even gone the same if I didn't, you know, have this point in my career where I am doing the bleacher and turner, I'm getting the linear side and the digital side. It has just allowed me more freedom, especially as an interviewer. You know, I do these interviews and they're an hour long. Where would I do an hour long interview you know what i mean i was just gonna say that i this is again this would be my take from covering the space for a little bit i do not think you i mean never say never obviously i mean there are unicorns obviously in our business but it would it would be it would be a serious long shot if you were at a traditional place like an espn for you to be in a position where you could do an hour long form interview with the person of your choice, asking the questions of your choice, presenting it your way. It's just, it's not a structure, I think, that would allow someone to get to that point um, at your chronological age. Um, and that's probably not a good thing, but I just think if you're, if you're being honest, like, there's not a 29-year-old Taylor Rooks at ESPN right now doing one-hour-long-form interviews, correct? Like, there's a reason. But yet you can do this at your place. So to me, if this is the kind of content you want to do, which I think it clearly is, I think the path that you ended up taking was a great path. Yeah. I mean, I think even like beyond that, when you really think about it, who is anywhere on TV doing any long form interview of any kind? Very rare. You know, it's like there are really no more long form interviews, which to me is like very sad because I love it. I think interviewing is such an art. I think asking the right question is like such an art and a craft. And I wish, you know, you could tune into something and really just like sit and watch people have relevant discourse and exchange of thoughts and exchange of ideas. And I know people, you know, you can go to something like podcasts for that too, but there is something really special about watching somebody say what they think. Um, watching them think about the words they want to say, you know, hesitating on whether they're going to answer something or not, smiling when they answer, like all of that really tells you about what they're saying and what they think and who they are. And I just feel very, you know, lucky and thankful that I get to do it so often for such a long time and for, and with people that, other people really do care about. Um, so when people, you know, talk about, okay, what is it that you do? You know, obviously I do report sometimes as well. I do host and all those things, but I think what I really truly am is an interviewer. That's the thing that I want to be known as doing. And I don't know how many interviewers exist um, linear. Yeah, no, I mean, and, uh, and you hit it. I think like that has sort of morphed to the podcast space. But the difference is you have to have some kind of video element to see the reaction of the person, which I think tells a very big part of the story um, in addition to their words. All right, a couple more things here. I read a, uh, 
I read a piece, uh, an interview that you did, or someone interviewing you, and one of the things you had really wanted to do was an interview with a live audience, um, with either an athlete or a sports figure. Has that has that happened yet for you? And if it hasn't happened for you, um, now within a knock on wood, a post pandemic universe, can that happen for you? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I, like you said, knock on wood, post pandemic uh, universe where it's safe for everyone to go and all those things. I would, I would absolutely love to do that. Um, and that's not something that I think is, you know, like a, like a long shot or anything. It's just logistically making it work, going to a city that has like an athlete that is able to do a live audience interview, all these things. Um, but I, I totally want that to happen. And I think it, it could happen um, this year for sure. Okay. All right. Something to so cross your fingers. Yeah. <laughs> you uh, is the, is your um, again, something else that's um, in doing my prep for this uh, struck me. I think people, when they think about you, they do think about you as someone who, um, who works in the NBA space. Yeah. You know, a lot of your interviews are in the NBA. Um, you have, you're well connected in that league. You know, obviously a lot of people, um, but you have interest beyond the NBA, correct? And I think one of the things that, um, you would like to take on at least at some point would be more NFL content in some form or fashion. Is that accurate? Oh, totally. I mean, I am Southern. So bat or football is my favorite sport. Obviously I love basketball, but like I grew up watching football, you know, I'm a, I come from a, a football family. That's just, that's just what well, your dad I'm was right. a, was a terrific college football player. If people don't know. That. Yeah. So I, I love football. You know, I was super happy that, you know, for Super Bowl week, we were able to talk to DK Metcalf and, and Micah Parsons, you know, take it there. We had, Saquon Barkley on and you know we so I definitely like I'll sprinkle in you know a, a football player when I can if you know if I have a friendship with someone a relationship with somebody who is in the football space and I know it's a it's a name that BR would care about I will always say hey can we interview this person please um, and if it aligns with you know our programming and our demographic and our audience and all those things they they make it happen um, and that is another thing I do really love about where I'm at right now is I have a massive amount of, of creative control, right? Like if I, I wanted to interview, you know, Quavo on the show last season. So we did, you know, or Michael B. Jordan. So we did, you know, so, so there's, if somebody is relevant, right. And they have something to say. And if that thing is aligned with sports and, you know, any, you know, way, shape or fashion, they'll make it work, which also helps me too, because it allows me to interview many different people about many different things. Um, but I would definitely love to incorporate even more uh, NFL players. Yeah. So I'll just mention if in case somebody who's listening doesn't know, uh, Taylor's dad is Thomas Rooks who played uh, for the university of Illinois and was uh, obviously a really well-known football player. Uh, Taylor is a university of Illinois alum. And I think, am I right? Your mom, I think is a university of Illinois yes. mm -hmm. alum too. Yeah. Yeah, no, you guys are you guys are ridiculous. It's a it's a line I family. <laughs> so Clearly. whenever I whenever I have kids, one of them better go there. I am not taking no for an answer. <laughs> I hope I hope at least I get the, they give you the legacy discount. Or hey, something. you, know, you, you and me are, both. <laughs> you you put enough you put enough time and money into that place. So all right, so for you, you know, like the reality is, like you certain, you know, one of the things I think you've seen in the media space, Taylor, is that. People have multiple jobs. I mean, my God, I'm talking you know, on the same day that Amazon finally announced Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreit. Kirk Herbstreit is going to continue to work doing college football for ESPN while doing the NFL for Amazon. We have seen a ton of people who have um, 
you know, jobs in, in different mediums. People work for multiple companies. So it does seem like if the NFL is something you want to pursue, the possibilities do exist. Yeah. I'm, and that's, I will say, another thing that is great about the time now is people are able to do whatever, like, moves them, right? Like, there's just so many different outlets um, that are are aligned with, I just think the interests of other people. Like, I think it's really beautiful that Kirk can work at ESPN, you know, and cover college football, but then go to Amazon and cover NFL. And it's not viewed as some competitive thing because what he does for one is what he's doing for the other. And what he does for the other is what he's doing for the one, you know? So I think that is really how the sports landscape should be in a lot of ways. I think that the more, you know, your talent is out there, the better it is for you too. And it also makes your talent better. Anybody who can just get another rep, they're just better. The more reps you could do at anything, you're going to be better at. So I I really like that people are dipping their toes into, into so many different things. Like even now, you know, with Carrie and Jamal at CNN Plus, like all of that yeah, I think exactly. is is really important. And it sets, I think, precedent for a, a bunch of other media talent too. I feel like the last time I, I, I talked to you, one of the people you had either wanted to interview or meet was Pam Oliver, yes. uh, who I know very, very well and who's been on this podcast a ton of times. And I've obviously, since covering sports media, I've, you know, I can't think of how many times I've interviewed her. I mean, you know, it's in the, the dozens and dozens and dozens. Did that ever come about? Did you guys ever meet or did you ever intersect? No, and I do not know how I haven't met Pam Oliver. Like, I feel and like she's like possible? one of the few, you know, women in sports that I haven't met. Um, but I don't know. I mean, where did she, I assume she lives on the West Coast? No, she, she lives in Atlanta. She's in Atlanta. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, you, I, this is going to be the first time I've ever done this on a podcast in like, uh, 400 podcasts. Taylor, once we are done with this podcast, I- I'm going to give you a way to get in touch. No, with you. please do. I mean, no, you mentioned to me, you were like, okay, she is Pam is great. Pam is Pam is. And I, I do not say this about many, many people in the business, but Pam is the real shit. Like she is just a real genuine human being. She's honest and forthright. And I think she would love to, um, I, my, I imagine because she knows sort of the landscape of the media, she certainly probably knows who you are. And um, I think um, I think she would like be overjoyed to to have that connection. But she lives in Atlanta. She's lived there for a number of decades, always uh, travels from Atlanta to wherever her um, NFL game is. Um, just did a long piece with her. She just turned 60. She gave me one of the great Yay. quotes of the year that I've had in The Athletic, calling herself, I'm a grown-ass yes. woman. I don't have time for bullshit. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, Pam is great. She really, she is truly, um, I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's an honest, real thing to say, like Pam Oliver paved the way, not just for black women like yourself, but Pam Oliver paved the way for women to be in high profile. 100%. And you can't, you can't say enough. Oh, 100%. At least in my book. 100%. And I don't know if it's even talked about enough how good she is. Like, I uh, think phenomenal. it's like hard to be a great sideline reporter. She is a yeah. great. Well, Pam, her, her background is in news. Pam is an excellent yeah. reporter. And she, um, again, if you just talk to people who sort of are within the NFL circles, um, she reports like she's got her notebook out. She's talking to people. Um, she does the work. It's not just, you know, here's my quick sort of sideline take. I mean, and anybody who's worked on an NFL broadcast knows that. The good sideline reporters, you only hear 10% on the air of what yeah. they got. The other 90% goes to the booth. 
and the booth gets to use that stuff. So yeah, I could talk about Pam for, for days. She's no, uh, she's I love, awesome. I love hearing that. Like she is all the things that I think she is. So that's, that's beautiful. All right. Taylor, who is your, uh, who are you allowed to say who your next, uh, guests coming up are? Do you oh, have yeah, anybody, totally. Or is there someone out there you really, really want who you've been working on for a well, while? Well, I know confirmed we have Sue Bird in Seattle next week, which I'm oh, super like excited about. Um, I always feel like I don't want to jinx anyone else until I have like a date and a time, but we have a date and a time for Sue. But then also I think some some really good NBA players coming up as well. So it's it's going to be, and you know, I think an NFL player too, fingers crossed, but I, I have someone kind of in the crosshairs that I think is going to pan out. So I'll keep you updated. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Who do you think will end it on this? Who do you think is the hardest person? Who would be the hardest person to get in sports to do a nower kind of anything you want to ask me? Uh, sit down. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it be LeBron? Would it, I don't, I mean, I'm so I to, actually don't I think mean, it's someone like LeBron only because like, so when someone asks me a question like that, I think of somebody who doesn't speak. Like LeBron speaks so much. Like he has a production company. We've seen uh, LeBron doing interviews, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. So I think it would yep. be like Kawhi or or like Yeah, maybe. Or like Marshawn Lynch back in the day yeah, before I even think like stuff, Lamar right? Jackson. I've never seen Lamar Jackson do a sit down ever. That would you be know, good. so it, yeah. it's more so these people that I'm just like they're super scarce, you know? Um, so those, those are just two that, that come to my mind. Like, I think it would be harder to get like Lamar or Kawhi than I think it would be to get like Tom Brady. I agree. Kawhi, I, you know, Kawhi played in Toronto where I live for a year. And, uh, I mean, if the guy, if the guy didn't do one long form interview all year, uh, he was certainly polite and all that, but you, he left this town, with really, you really <laughs> no, had no literally, yeah. I mean, he had a little sense of it, <laughs> yeah. but not really. And so he, to his, he's to his credit, he's sort of done things his own way, and you don't really know him. Like that would be a good one. I would love to. I would. Lo- I would totally watch an hour sit down with, um, with Kawhi. I thought the guy who got closest to him. I don't know if you ever saw this, but Serge Ibaka has yeah, a they, show he, where he sort of yeah. cooks crazy things. Yeah. That's the best. That's the closest I feel like I've ever learned about Kawhi when Serge tried to get him to eat. Yeah, some really totally. Crazy yeah, and I think that's that's probably just how Kawhi is. Like he either like he has to like really know you and trust you as a human probably before he says exactly. one word to you. So yeah, but I would I would love yeah, to watch him actually sit down and have questions asked to him. And this is this is not a all in Octa Surge. I love Surge's show. I think it's entertaining and you learn things about the athletes, but there is something very special about somebody who is like a trained journalist asking athletes questions. Yeah, yes. Just yeah. because right. you right. you will just get different things from the athlete than you would if you're, you know, an, an athlete sitting with an athlete. So there's always going to be a space yeah. for athletes to have their own shows and production companies and things like that. It's always going to be fun and entertaining, but there will always be a space for journalists to have that too. Yeah, and the reality is, I mean, you know, Kawhi's, Kawhi as a teenager and what happened with his family – um, and he lost a parent. Like that's the kind of like Serge Ibaka is not getting into that. But that would be something where if Kawhi ever opened up on that, I would find that fascinating because I don't know anything about the guys, sort of how he became totally. who he became. And so I'm with you on that. 
All right, uh, Taylor, you give me a lot of time, and I appreciate that. So let's uh, um, let's give Taylor uh, one last promotion here. Taylor Brooks. It, Taylor Brooks. <laughs> Did okay. I say Taylor Brooks? Why am I saying Taylor Brooks? I'm losing it. I meant I, I was trying to say Bleacher Report fast. Taylor, don't cut that, Patrick. Let my mistakes shine. Taylor Rooks of Bleacher Report is a um, obviously a host as well as an interviewer and does some obviously reporting as well. You can catch Taylor Rooks and. But again, if you were going to look at this, it's it would look like Taylor Rooks X, you know, get it X in terms of tell, Taylor Rooks and her guests. That's a vo- uh, a vodcast, which is in its second season. Uh, she's done DeMar DeRose and DK Metcalf and Micah Parsons this year. She said she's doing Sue Bird, who's always an excellent interview. And uh, I'm not sure I mentioned this, but uh, her series is the most, uh, in terms of all the Bleacher video stuff, um, she has the most engagement out of anybody who's hosting a series right now. So obviously, uh, in terms of like aggregated views, we're talking in the millions. So this, it's the kind of thing that people pay attention to. Uh, Taylor, I really enjoy this. Thank you for uh, giving me your time and, uh, and your insight. And, uh, and, and hopefully I'll have you back soon on this podcast. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us on the Sports Media Podcast. No, thank you so much. I love it every time you always ask me something that I like have not ever thought about. So I enjoy that so deeply and I appreciate you for having me on. All right, as I said at the top, Alex Sherman covers technology, media, and telecommunications for CNBC. He joined that outlet in 2018 after working for many years at Bloomberg. He's here to discuss his latest piece, which was of significant interest to people who uh, write about the media, read about the media, and for the purposes of this podcast, ESPN, which is a major part of Disney. That latest piece from Alex is headlined Bob Chapik and Bob Iger had a falling out and rarely talk. The rift looms over Disney's future. Highly, highly recommend it. Head to CNBC's website or Alex's uh, Twitter page. To check that out, and please to be joined by Alex Sherman of CNBC. Alex, happy welcome. to be here, Richard. You thank it. you for uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. I appreciate uh, you know someone of your heft uh, slumming down to this podcast. So thank you, uh, thank no, you. No, long time fan of yours. <laughs> All right, so let's. I want to start off with just sort of something big. Just I think that people who listen to this podcast will be interested in. Uh, what's the biggest challenge? to write about media companies and specifically the top executives at those companies? So look, the biggest challenge, I think this probably goes beyond media, but every company is very guarded of their image. So each of these companies has their own communication staff, PR people, and those PR staffs are paid money to make sure that their companies come across uh, as positively as they can. But, you know, sometimes these stories uh, have aspects to them that are not glowing about either the, the companies themselves sometimes or the executives that work at those companies. So the, the art of journalism with these types of pieces is how do you get the message across uh, and, and make sure that the, the facts are accurate while also working with the companies themselves and making sure that the piece is balanced. So, you know, when, when you go about writing one of these things, it's not like I'm springing all of this information on Disney and, and its and its executives uh, by surprise. 
uh, I, I'm keeping them in the loop about what I'm writing. I'm allowing them to respond if they'd like to. In this particular case, Disney and Bob Chapek for this story chose not to say anything on the record. Um, but, you know, they had a chance and they knew what was going to be in the story. So the idea is make sure this is accurate while also making sure that Disney has a chance uh, to say, you know, what it wants to say. So you have to really go through a long process of talking to enough people uh, on background or off the record so that you're sure that the end story comes out accurate and balanced, particularly when you've got a lot of people with very clear uh, and sometimes not so clear agendas, right? So the art is let's take information, let's corroborate it in several places, and let's try to weed out to the best of my ability any sort of biases or other agendas there that may be coloring the facts. This is of interest to my listeners. And that is obviously Bob Chapik is the new Disney CEO following Bob Iger's uh, longtime run there. From your perspective, Alex, how has Chapik's leadership um, views, values, what he believes in, how has that impacted ESPN versus the Iger era? So the big difference was sort of an organizational uh, a decision that Bob Chapek made that um, that Bob Iger did not agree with. And, and it was this idea that instead of the various different fiefdoms within broader Disney, ESPN being one of them, but think about the parks division or, uh, you know, content creation, film studios, Disney's a big company. It used to be under Bob Iger that the people that ran those decisions also had what is sort of the lingo, the financial lingo is called PL power, but it's basically power of the purse, having control of what you're spending on and sort of how much you're spending on. And the idea was that the people that made the content should also have uh, power of the purse control so that they could pull back and forth the levers, decide I'm going to spend more on this, less on that, et cetera. And, and it was the leaders of these divisions that should have that power. Bob Chapek made the decision that that quite a bit of that power would actually be centralized under one person. His name is Kareem Daniel, and he's sort of been Bob Chapek's right-hand man for the last decade. That decision irritated a lot of people at Disney who ran some of these divisions, who used to basically be able to run their own businesses, and now they've lost that P&L power. So they can still create content. Uh, but they now no longer have the ability to, uh, you know, decide exactly like we're going to spend X amount on this and, 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 and we're going to dial back uh, certain amounts of money on this other thing. Instead, that information, sort of the amount of money information uh, is, is directly given to them by this centralized force uh, run by Kareem Daniel. So from the ESPN perspective, you know, I, I think that. Uh, from from my all I from, from from what I understand, Jimmy Pitaro, who runs ESPN, uh, has a fine relationship with Kareem Daniel, and and they've been able to make this system work. The rationale behind the new system is that in this new world, uh, the way Disney's going to be valued by Wall Street is how successful it is from a streaming standpoint. Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN Plus—that's what investors care about. 
So by centralizing all of this and deciding, okay, this is how much we're going to spend on streaming. We're going to put this on ESPN Plus. We're going to put this on the ESPN cable networks. We're going to put this on Hulu, Disney Plus. You need one person basically to be pulling the levers of all of this shift of, of, of these, these various different decisions. Otherwise, you're going to end up with conflicting decisions and kind of a confused strategical mess by having all of these different fiefdoms making their own decisions. You know, maybe the ESPN system believes in one thing, maybe the ESPN Plus and Disney Plus believe in something else. So this idea of like, okay, let's put one person in charge and make all of these decisions is sort of futuristic looking. Um, and, and I'm not sure if it's the right decision or not, but I kind of at least understand the decision from the standpoint of we're going to send a message out to Wall Street that this is the way we do things now. So this is that's long-winded explanation for how does ESPN fit into a part of this? The, well, the go, the, ahead. The, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you. You know, the the sort of a, the the larger question, and this is something you cited from Lightshed's Rich Greenfield, who is a I, I think fair to say an ESPN critic. Um, he's argued that Disney would be best spinning out ESPN and combining it with a digital sports book. So that while you're, um, you know, you sort of explained how the new Disney setup works or ESPN's role in the new Disney setup works under JPEG, um, I'm wondering how you see the possibility of maybe them just deciding, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to make you guys your own company here and separate you from Disney and, you know, ESPN combining, I don't know if this is going to happen, but let's just sort of play it out. ESPN combining with a digital sports book would be a, you know, we're still talking a billion dollar company here, uh, even oh, outside. Oh, yeah, many billions. So, many billions, so there's, exactly. Let, let me put the gambling thing aside. Strategically, I actually agree with Rich that there is a decent strategic logic to separating ESPN from Disney. And the main reason for that is ESPN still makes the bulk of its money tied to the legacy pay TV model um, where, where pay TV providers pay about $10 per month per subscriber for every single person that pays for cable of which ESPN is a part of that. It is, it has long been a huge money-making machine for ESPN. Now that model is dwindling it, it but the question for ESPN is, do they want to fight to hang on to that model for as long as possible? Or do they want to kind of self-cannibalize and push forward for the future by saying, okay, we're going to put all of our best stuff on streaming and we're going to give all of you cable subscribers that last reason to cancel cable. That is a big strategic decision that Disney will have to make. Disney has, de How far Disney has decided that it wants to push you towards streaming for all of its entertainment properties. Again, in part because Wall Street is valuing Disney on the number of Disney Plus subscribers it has. So Disney has already made the decision that it's going to go all in on streaming from an entertainment content standpoint. All of its best stuff is on Disney Plus. All the movies, all the new series, Mandalorian, Star Wars series, Marvel spinoffs, it's all on Disney Plus. It's not on Disney Channel and FX. They don't care about that anymore. But ESPN has not made that decision. The best stuff on ESPN continues to rest on the ESPN cable channel, not ESPN Plus. 
So ESPN, the fiefdom of ESPN in the larger Disney has made a different strategic decision than the rest of Disney. That's the rationale to spin off ESPN and say, hey, look, if you want to tie yourself to the legacy cable model, that is in strategic misalignment with the rest of our company here. So maybe it is better off as another company. Now, if that decision is just a matter of time, if the decision that Bob Chapek and Jimmy Pitaro make is, look, we understand this other model is dying. We can't do anything about it. We don't want to fight to keep it. So we'll just milk it until it really becomes unprofitable for us. And then we'll throw everything to streaming. Well, then you're in strategic alignment again. And maybe it makes more sense to stay a part of one company. Although it's interesting. And I, you know, the, the one thing though, is that, you know, they do have some deals that are predicated on the inventory being on, you know, their cable channels or over the air, you know, the NFL deal, as you know, Alex is certainly one of them. Um, the NBA is going to come up, and if ESPN is still interested in the NBA, I, I'm not sure the NBA is going to be comfortable with all its games on a streaming platform. College football, which is obviously a very, very profitable business for ESPN, it's the same issue. I don't know if ESPN is at the point where they're going to put, um, you know, sort of make this up, Georgia versus Alabama on ESPN+. Plus. So they're, they're in a very tricky spot because so much, I think, of, of their game inventory, not their shoulder program, but their game inventory still is predicated, at least based on their rights holder partners, on being on cable as opposed to just streaming only. And maybe you're right. Maybe at a certain point, three, five, six years, that you know, ESPN just decides that, hey, we're doing this and the rights holder partners have to live with it. But I'm also sure there are contractual things that say they can't necessarily do that. A hundred percent. And and you might think to yourself, like, well, maybe they should just put all these games on ESPN Plus and keep it on cable, and then they can, you know, so they can they can basically uh, cater to both audiences. But 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 that's where again you get into the contractual uh, agreements here. The reason that all these pay TV providers are are paying nine or ten dollars a month uh, every month for ESPN as part of your cable bill is that the games are exclusive to ESPN. That's why they pay so much money for ESPN. So so they are going to argue like, hey, we, we agreed to pay you all of this money because part of the agreement was that this is the only way that you can get this content. If, if, if Disney and ESPN are going to decide to, to change those agreements, they're going to have to renegotiate with all of the various pay TV providers. And of course, the pay TV providers will say, we can't pay you this type of money for this product because you're also now throwing all of this stuff on ESPN plus. So it is a business decision that Disney and ESPN today have made where they said, okay, look, we still make more model. Excuse me. We still make more money with this old kind of wholesale model here. So today it still makes sense for us to be putting all of our chips in the old traditional TV basket. Uh, at some point, if the number of subscribers for cable drops down so low, I'm told it's probably well below 50 million. Today, it's like 75 million U.S. households or so still subscribe to traditional cable. If that number drops down to lower than 50 million, which is years away still, only then would ESPN and Disney say, okay, now it makes sense for us to basically go to all the pay TV providers and say, this doesn't make sense for us anymore. It makes more sense for us to do it this new way. So we, we may be many years away from that, which is which again gets back to the first question you said, which is 
does it make sense for ESPN to belong within Disney? Well, that's many years of strategic misalignment that's coming up because the the it doesn't make sense for Disney to decide to go all in on ESPN streaming. Now, maybe they'll make a different decision, but as I'm told today, that's the thinking. They're going to hold on. Disney will hold on to ESPN. ESPN will continue to provide Disney with a lot of money, but there will be this tension within the company, and they'll use the billions of dollars that ESPN provides to to make more content for Disney Plus and potentially ESPN Plus. Yeah, that's a great, great point. I agree. I think, I mean, that I think that's how to read it. I, I don't think this transformation um, is happening so quickly, at least on ESPN Plus. And I think either they decide to go with a strategic, um, you know, alignment that is not in sync with each other or like, like, uh, uh, like Rich said, you know, you decide to spit it off. I want to get to two issues before I let you go. Um, we talked a little bit about gambling, and I want to get back to that. Um, <laughs> it is, you know, companies in many ways are uh, almost sometimes have to be, maybe hypocritical is too strong a word, but, you know, misaligned, let's say. And I find it certainly amusing that Disney, uh, which sort of obviously pushes a certain kind of brand and values, has... Uh, leaped into the gambling space much in the same way the NFL has because there's too much money not to leap into the gambling space when you look at this um and this would be my um my sort of take I don't think I see ESPN merging with a you know a DraftKings or a whatever a BetMGM but I certainly see them figuring out a smart way to license the ESPN name with these sports betting companies you know, for a billion dollar type of deal. How do you ultimately see where ESPN goes with sports uh, betting and gambling in the near term? If ESPN stays a part of Disney, which I think it will, then I think you're absolutely right. That's the direction we're headed in. I'm told that there's no interest in, in acquiring or merging ESPN with a sports betting company. They have looked into these sort of billion dollar licensing deals where the gambling companies can use the ESPN name. And I do think that this that there's an obvious kind of next step to that, which is that on either ESPN2 or some other cable channel or ESPN+, Plus, I think there's a high likelihood that we see uh, uh, tailored content toward the gambling audience on ESPN. And you, you reference sort of this larger idea of like, well, does the Disney brand sync with gambling? At this point, I think the stigma around sports betting has waned and dissipated enough because it just gets you know as as the years go by it's simply legalized it, in more it's, just, it's also legalized in so many states that exactly it's at, like the lottery point it's yeah exactly right. i'm yeah. with you on that yeah so so that i don't really think they have that same brand concern and again espn has its own defined brand uh, you know if you ask the random person on the street i'm not even sure they would know disney owned espn i agree yeah, I agree. So, so, so I think ESPN will be fine in that area of waiting closer uh, to, to to sports betting. But I absolutely think you're right that uh, I would not expect ESPN to actually merge and get into the business of sports gambling. That's different from say Yahoo, which I'm told is actively thinking about merging Yahoo Sports with a sports betting company, so that Yahoo would actually be in the business of of being a sports book. I wouldn't expect that for Disney or ESPN. One fun thing before we finish up with the um, uh, with uh, with Bob Chapik and his LGBTQ employees, uh, Bob Iger 
uh, is very tight with Al Michaels. You, I think it was a great, I mean, uh, sports media sort of nerds like myself will recognize this in your piece that Michaels was, um, you know, he was at a, you, you sort of referenced that he was one of the guests at a dinner for Bob Iger. I don't, you can remind me if that was his retirement dinner or, or something. Yeah, it was his going away dinner because going he was leaving dinner. as executive chairman. Right, right. Okay. So, what are, you know, given obviously there's been so much, uh, you know, uh, this has been the silly season for NFL broadcasters. So I wanted to ask you as someone who sort of covers it from a little different perspective than me. If, if Robert Iger is running Disney, do you think Al Michaels ultimately ends up with ESPN instead of Amazon? Yeah, certainly possible. I think that's quite likely that, that, that that's, that that's uh, the case. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, there is a decent amount of uh, uh, personal um, relationships that come to these deals, particularly I think with sports at, announcers. Where, yeah, where at that level. At that level. Sure. Exactly. So yeah, I think, I think, I think that's absolutely uh, uh, possible. Yeah. The one thing, and I'm sure you learned this too, the one thing I sort of uh, didn't know initially, but now obviously I haven't covered for a while, um, have come to understand is how much the high profile on air talents have a relationship with the, the CEO types. 100%. And again, you know, some right. of it is, some of it is uh, peripheral relationships, but others it's real relationships. And, you know, maybe these are relationships of convenience, but like, you know, there are Fox broadcasters who know Lachlan Murdoch, like Fox Sports broadcasters, and have a relationship with him. Um, there are a ton who knew Bob Iger. Um, you know, even with the ability to, like, in like Al Michaels' case, contact Bob Iger and go directly, you know, way over your bosses. Um, so it's sort of an interesting dynamic sometimes, and I'm sure this happens in contractual negotiations where, you know, you're negotiating with like a talent office. But if you as an individual, like, know the big, big CEO, man, you know what I'm saying? You can sort of change the equation on your own uh, on your own negotiations, which is which is why the, so much of the business is a relationship uh, business above all. And, and, and it depends on who the CEO is, right? Some of these CEOs really get themselves in the weeds with the high profile talent at their yeah. company. I mean, this, is, this isn't an exact example because yeah. this person was more involved uh, uh, his 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 job definition was more involved in the news, but you saw it a little bit with what happened with Jeff Zucker, who ran yeah. for all oh of Warner Media, sports, and news. You saw all of these like CNN anchors so up in arms that he right. was leaving. And well, why did that happen? Because like Zucker made the time and effort to have very personal relationships with all of these people. Yeah. He also for, made him rich. Let's be honest. And he, and he made him rich. And Bob Iger can be thrown into the same camp too, right? Ultimately, Bob Iger is making these people rich as well. So that is a huge deal. Like, hey, I believe in you, and also I'm going to pay you a lot of money. Well, one thing, Richard, I do want to mention before we we leave, though, just to go, quickly go back to your previous question about why. ESPN is probably not going to get into the actual business of gambling because I think this is important and, and I should have said it. The business of gambling isn't a good business right now. So that is maybe the most important reason why I wouldn't expect ESPN to merge with a sports book. It, it, just take, take a look at DraftKings stock. Like the market has soured on this business. It's low margin and the, the cost of acquiring customers through marketing and through all these like ridiculous promotions that all of these companies are just kind of throwing people out is making this a major money losing business. So that might be the biggest reason why I wouldn't expect Disney to get into it because it's simply not a high enough margin business for, for Disney to want to get into it. Yeah, that's a you make a great point. Uh, you know, I'm not on Twitter at the moment, but people used to who followed me on Twitter know full well how I feel about Jeff Zucker. 
So that's <laughs> it's rather obvious. That's me, by the way, not Alex. I don't want Alex to have to take the uh, shrapnel for that. Thanks. Let's um, let's finish up here. This was, you know, we're taping this on the day that this came out from ESPN, which I think was really, really interesting to me. Um, ESPN sent out on their social media feeds a statement that says ESPN believes in inclusivity and denounces legislation and actions across the United States that infringe on any human rights. We stand with our LGBTQIA plus colleagues, friends, families and fans. They sort of um, they extended that message a little bit, but that's sort of the um, the 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 large takeaway. What is interesting here, Alex, is that that ESPN, which my Lord, you know. How how much they've sort of had to sort of deal with, um, uh, you know, a lot of, in my opinion, bad faith actors. Anytime um, they get into these areas of uh, of sports or politics or social justice, I think anybody who knows me knows that, you know, I think you're just being ignorant if you don't think these issues have always existed going way back hundreds of years. But ESPN gets tagged whenever they sort of um, leave an apolitical branch. And I found that really, really fascinating, and it gets back to something you had talked earlier about Bob Chapik, who has had to apologize to his company's LGBT, LGBTQ employees for his messaging on the Florida House Bill 1557, uh, which supporters would call the Parental Rights and Education Bill. Opponents refer to it as the Don't Say Gay Bill. I'm wondering from your perspective, Alex, one, what did you think of ESPN making a public corporate statement supporting this that's one that was really interesting to me i'm glad they did it personally but uh, i think i thought it was interesting and two man it continues to get back to the chapik stuff that how's this guy going to get out of this hole that he is he's put himself in because i don't see this to me this issue's not going away for bob chapik that's just my read on this yeah i think there's a lot of uh angry disney employees um at bob chapik uh, and, and it doesn't help as my story uh, that I wrote over the weekend laid out that uh, Bob Iger weeks before Bob Chapek decided to, again, kind of explain why he wasn't going to say anything about this very publicly tweeted, uh, you know, in support of the LGBTQ community and, and against the legislation. I think my read, and again, I don't, I don't know this for a fact. I have not actually spoken to Disney or ESPN about why they came out with a tweet this morning that was very publicly uh, uh, supporting the, the community and against the legislation. But my read on it, knowing what's going on at Disney, is that Disney and ESPN, uh, but particularly corporate Disney, is in an, an all-out, all-hands-on-deck retreat mode from their original stance here of not taking a stand. I, I think Disney is throwing everything they've got at, we made a mistake, we need to be very forcefully in, in, you know, denouncing the legislation uh, in Florida and in any other state that happens on this. So, look, they're, they're, Bob Chapek is doing like listening tours now within the company. The, the Disney canceled this big management retreat that they have um, for like 275 executives that I think was scheduled for next week. They've canceled that because of all of the bad press around this. Uh, so that it doesn't seem like uh, you know they're they're not listening to their employees. They're having almost daily meetings internally. Various different people. Bob Chapek's at some. Uh, he's not at others. But the the company is very forcefully trying to put out this fire at this point. 
So I, 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 that's my read on the statement, which is like, look, we're not going to run from this. We're going to do the exact opposite of the thing we said last week or two weeks ago, whatever it was. Where they you said know, so we'll, what's interesting is we'll see, you know, like we'll see if they continue this um, or if it's kind of a one week crisis management kind of play. Here's the one thing I would say about this. Um, and Alex, you're the expert on this. I'm not. Um, these kind of things do have a way of mushrooming and potentially putting the CEO at risk. Yeah. If it if it gets a little too out of control, if the stock price starts to go down, and obviously if uh, you know the board of directors start to get a little squeamish, and I would just watch this one because you're already sort of hearing like Disney employees thinking about taking like a one day stand where they where they take off. Um, I don't think Florida will be the only. I mean, it's first of all, it's not. Florida's not going to be the only state that has this legislation. Disney obviously is trying to appeal to customers in every state. So, you know, I'm not gonna. I don't. I'm. I'm. I'm not educated enough to sort of take a guess on like how much trouble Bob Chapik is in. But I feel like I am sort of aware enough to sort of see what the next couple of weeks are going to be like because I have seen situations as of you where this thing snowballs to the point where the CEO has become too much of a story and the CEO has to step down. That is the question that everyone that is following this story is asking, Richard. I mean, that that is the question. I obviously have no better guess than you or anyone else at this point. Obviously, the Disney board doesn't like the story. Obviously, the Disney board wants this to go away. It is it is antithetical to the Disney brand uh, that Disney has worked so hard for decades uh, uh, to, to make as sort of, you know, the, the, the pristine, magical, happy, all of these words, tolerant. I mean, th- this, this idea where Disney would not be at the forefront of denouncing legislation like this uh, is, is the last thing that the board wants. That said, I will offer this as a uh, something to to look for uh, that Disney, you know, may have to be concerned about. We'll see. Because Disney is now being so out in front with this particular legislation, you do wonder if as other things potentially come up in the future, whether it's laws on abortion or or human rights issues in different countries, Will Disney stick its neck out and now say things that potentially it didn't want to say? Because that was the idea of the original statement, right? Which was, look, we're going to do things behind the scenes here, but we're not going to say something publicly because it doesn't really do anything. You do wonder if the entire Disney communication strategy will now change because of this, or if they'll be able to say, you know what, this is kind of a unique issue. It's so at the heart of what we do as a creative community, that we're going to take a public stand on this, but we're going to still kind of stay quiet on various other issues that may come up. I don't know. That kind of gets back to the how we started this conversation, which is this maybe has become sort of a communications crisis of Disney's own making simply because they talked publicly about not talking. And now you do wonder if this does potentially have the idea of, be, of bubbling over uh, into other various issues Particularly as Ron DeSantis, you know, who's who's the, the the governor of this legislation, may run for president in 2024. Will it become a larger political issue for Disney? I don't know, but it, it is something to look for. And certainly, uh, you know, I would say Bob Chapek is officially in the spotlight now. The, 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 the question, however, is 
is the PR nightmare that has happened here going to take him down? Or at, at the heart of things, is this still about Disney's performance? Is it about can't he grow Disney Plus subscribers? Is it about can't he rescue the theme park business? Is that ultimately what the board is going to judge him on because that's what shareholders judge him on? I don't yeah, know the answer. These are all excellent, all excellent questions. Uh, Alex Sherman covers technology, media, and telecommunications for CNBC. Um, his latest piece, Bob Chapik and Bob Iger had a falling out and rarely, rarely talk. The rift looms over Disney's future. Highly, highly recommended. Just fascinating reporting. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of sort of, uh, ESPN foreshadowing there as to what, um, what will happen to ESPN amid obviously the larger corporate company, Disney. Uh, Alex, man, thanks so much. It was really interesting, uh. Um, uh, discussion uh, certainly for me and I, I learned a lot I appreciate you uh, you coming on today to the Sports Media Podcast happy to do it my pleasure Richard alright back in the studio my thanks to Taylor Rooks and Alex Sherman for their time and uh, and insight really excellent conversations I enjoyed that very much um, if you want to head to our archives hopefully there will be something that you like there previous podcasts include uh, ESPN's Rebecca Lobo and Holly Rowe on covering the uh, the NCAA Women's Tournament. TJ Quinn of ESPN, who is the investigative reporter assigned to the Brittany Griner story in Russia, and a very scary one at that. Before that, Bomani Jones and Jeff Perlman. Before that, Brian, Curter, Brian Curtis of The Ringer. And then we did a uh, long roundtable on the state of Canadian sports media with six uh, uh, distinguished Canadian sports media panelists. And then some talk on Troy Aikman's uh, uh, big move to ESPN, uh, which uh, now... <laughs> In the, as the cycle is headed on, we have Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreit's big moves to Amazon. If you like this kind of stuff, please uh, leave us a, uh, a five-star review and a nice note. That is how this podcast continues. I know I say that every week, but it is true. Like That's pretty much how this thing is going to continue to roll if you guys want it to roll on. Um, as always, thank you to Patrick Antonetti. Thanks to everybody, Kane's 13 team for their support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.